Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'm exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our time. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout this series we'll be delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. Following on from all the practical tools and techniques PwC UK Chair Kevin Ellis shared in the last episode, this time we'll be going a little deeper and discussing Leading Beyond the Ego, which happens to be the title of a book. So I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors, John Knights and Danielle Grant, both directors of Leadership Global. We were speaking on Zoom and there was a little interference on Danielle's feed. We've cleaned it up as best we can in post-production, but please bear with us if there's a little crackle here and there. What I'd be really interested to start off with is, is um, if you could um, each give me some thoughts around what actually got you into the whole leadership development um, arena in the first place and how your fascination has developed to get you to where you are now. Perhaps, Danielle, you'd like to kick us off with that. Uh, Well, as a former organisational leader to chief executive level um, of a division of a public company and having had um, board level roles in in sort of blue chips, I learned leadership the hard way. You make a mistake, you mess it up and then you try and get it right. Um, And there were a few sort of seminal experiences like my boss in one blue chip company when I had inherited his seven sales guys into my sales and marketing team, tried to tell me how I should lead them. Well, as he led them as a rugby playing um, Mm -hmm. bar propping propping up chap and how I led them as a non-drinking female could never be the same. Um, so the whole concept of adapting your leadership style, not only to suit the circumstances, but to be the best that you can be and not try and be somebody else is something that I learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. And when I joined Leadership, we always feel that what we do is help our clients have the benefit of experience, a benefit of hindsight without the pain of experience. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that's sort of how I got involved with it after deciding to uh, leave the corporate environment. Okay, and that was about 12 years ago, was it? Am I right uh, uh, yeah, yeah, a, a little bit more than 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. Okay, and how about you, John? Uh, well, some similarities. I mean, I had a, a corporate, um, corporate background um, and uh, I was pretty successful. Uh, became a senior executive up to FTSE main board level um, when I was before I was 40. Um, but then I had the opportunity to become chief executive. But for ethical reasons, I decided not to go ahead with it. And in those days, there was no such thing as whistleblowing. You either you either agreed to it or you got out and I got out and I decided from that moment on that I wanted to be my own boss and I followed um, I became an entrepreneur and started up a few companies over a period of time but it was really in 1998 so that's 21 years ago when I got the opportunity to learn to coach and I was sort of recruited on a time part-time basis while I was still running my own IT company 
um, to moderate a group of chief executives. Um, and while I was doing that, it, it, they became sort of a, a mirror to my own experience. I was learning as, as much as they were, even though I was coaching them. Um, and it sort of, it brought into real focus how I'd gone through, you know, 20, 25 years of leadership without really thinking too much about what leadership was. Um, and I just, like most of us, just got on with a day job. And how you dealt with individuals was more uh, based on your uh, innate values and, and, um, and the behaviors that you'd been brought up with. And there was never any real conscious thought about how one might change those things in order to be a better leader. And that came very much to the fore when I was working with these chief executives and we were doing action learning sets and they were coming up each time with, a, with an issue. One of them would come up with an issue and the others would uh, go through with them and come up with a solution. And they were very successful at that. But what we found was that it was very s symptomatic. It, they were, they were solving the symptom, but not getting to the cause. Yeah. And what we found was that sort of 80, 70, 80% of the issues were about people. Um, so that was when we really, or I, to, and when I say we, there were uh, a few, uh, there were two or three other groups um, of these chief executives led by other moderators. And we moderators sort of talked to each other. And we decided that we really had to get to the cause of this behavioral stuff. And that was when we started to get involved in emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then a few years later, we got, we were so keen on it and so interested in it. We decided to, that that should be our next career. So we started up Leadership. Okay. Yeah. And so um, what was it that brought you and Danielle together in, within Leadership? I guess, Danielle, you're the best one to answer that. Um, I was being, uh, well, I was going through my own um, coaching postgraduate qualification at the time. And um, I had somebody that I'd met during my course who was who had become my coach. And um, he introduced me to Leadership um, as he was an associate with at the time. Um, and that was actually probably a bit more than 12 years ago, more like 14 years ago. And then about three years later, I was invited to join the board um, and to contribute to the development of the intellectual property, which has been an absolute massive journey for me as much as for the people we, we take on that journey now. Absolutely. And that was that leads nicely into my, my next uh, point, which is around trying to understand the journey that you've all been going through to to get from what would be um, looking at how you move from symptoms to actually tackling the deeper issues to evolving the idea of transpersonal leadership. So can, can you take us through that journey a little bit, please? Uh, well, I'll, I could start on that. Um, as I said, we when we got to, started with the behavioral stuff and uh, it was just at that time when emotional intelligence was sort of as a science was becoming to be accepted at least in some quarters mm -hmm. um, and we sort of uh, took took that and started to use emotional intelligence to develop leaders and we found that that was you know very very useful um, 
and leaders were saying that it was you know changing their lives not only in their business lives but also in their personal lives as well as they they began to understand um, or, or gain self-awareness and um, beginning to learn how to manage their behaviors and their uh, emotions sorry how to manage their emotions in particular and in doing that it was really sort of enabling them to focus on on how their behavior was affecting the people they were leading and as that how it was affecting their performance so but the but the but the issue came about really was that that was great for behaviors but it wasn't necessarily it, it didn't necessarily make them ethical or values oriented um and as danielle um was say, saying in a in a video clip that i just watched a few minutes ago that you know hitler was highly intelligent in many ways um so so behavioral in, behavioral intelligence or emotional intelligence is really important um in order to work with people and get them motivated and so on and so forth but behind that if it's going to be if you're going to be running an ethical sustainable organization and caring organization then you have to have the values to go with it and that was really how how we got into the transpersonal whereas the um the first stage is sort of about self-awareness knowing yourself the second stage is about bringing your values to full consciousness how do you you make sure that you use your core values in everything you do that was the essence of the of the transpersonal approach so, so that's that's the transpersonal leader approaches how um you lead from ethics and values so yeah. how how do you enable people to make that transition then from um what i call from e egocentric to ecocentric leading it's very much about a journey of digging deeper into yourself. Most people um, have great values when it comes to their own families and the things they care about. And those of us that were leaders or grew up with leaders leading us in the 80s and 90s kind of felt that people left their values in, in the car, in the car park. But as John says, you, you, there was no such thing as an acceptance of whistleblowing. You just had to do what the boss told you to do. And with the rise of individuality and the cult of, 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 of um, the individual, people are no longer willing to do that. Um, and so it's about getting people to dig deeper into themselves and find those values that really speak to them and make them realize that they cannot live in conflict with their values and to realize that in today's changing world and there was an article that came out just today and i can't remember if it was uh, deloitte or somebody like that that said there is a new paradigm in um, the american um, corporate governance bodies that are saying that organizations need to be run in the interests of all the stakeholders and we've been for the last five to ten years so this is actually about allowing people to really become in touch with their better selves the people that they feel comfortable with that they can look in the mirror at and say i'm an okay person i live my values and those of us that have been obliged to live in conflict with our values know how appalling and destructive that can be so this is really about 
helping people to dig into their self-awareness at a deeper and more extended level and then follow that through into how does this translate into the decisions you make so how does it link to how your brain works how you think how you process information how your emotions can hijack you because they are a spiral mechanism not a mechanism to help us be better people that's the sort of the fundamentals of it john i don't know if you'd add anything to that well yeah i think just one thing to add to that and that is that when you talk about you know the ego to eco i think that's a very important thing and uh, you know when we when we're as young adults and we first go into the workforce then our tendency tends to be you know what what, what am i going to get out of it you know people are looking for their more money they want to buy a house. They've got a young, maybe a young family. So it's all about what I want for myself, which is not immoral. That's fine. But there comes a point when you become a leader that you're actually being paid to, and hopefully reasonably, so that you don't have those same, same sort of uh, fundamental or survival worries, um, that you can focus on what is right for the organization. And this is one of the things, this trans, transformation from being about me to being about the organization, which is quite fundamental when you're, when you're a leader. Mm-hmm. You've got to make decisions that's best for the organization. And there are going to be times when there's conflict because you're still going to think about your career and you know, what's best for me. But what is really important is to be able to bring that to full consciousness so that when you make a decision about what's what's right for me and what's right for the organization. You're, you're doing it in full knowledge of the, making that decision. You're not, you're not sort of just leading into, you know, making the decision, what's the best for me? And the typical examples are when we're making decisions um, and thinking about the benefit of the stakeholders. You know, what is, what's the benefit of all the stakeholders? And, and I think we're moving beyond what is just best for shareholders. Yeah. Um, and, and when you look at the stakeholders, then is it, that in, basically includes everybody. It includes the employees, of course, and it in, includes uh, cl- customers, but it also includes suppliers. It also includes the community. It also includes the planet. So that brings our scope of decision-making on a whole new level where we've got to leave ourselves behind in that and make the decision for the organization. And I believe that when we make the best decision for the organization, that in the long term, that'll be for our benefit too. Okay. So, so yeah, to, totally agree with that. Um, I've got, got a question around that, which is if we kind of map that thinking across to the leadership development framework, we're talking about the much higher levels of development in terms of being at the, the strategist and the alchemist stages of, of um, having much bigger concerns than just, just the local um, and how do we, give, given that there's so much pressure to deliver for the organisation, um, how, how do we then make that leap into looking beyond the boundaries of the organisation? I think for a start, we have to realise that organisations that behave ethically and um, adhere to good values and diverse practices are more successful. They're more sustainably successful. They don't incur massive fines. They don't have their, um, their offices raided by the authorities. 
um, they're able to have a long-term future, and that might mean compromising on maximizing profit in a given quarter or a given year, but it's in the interests of a long-term future for the company, um, for the organization, and all its stakeholders. And for me, this is really about um, a 21st century reinvention of the philanthropic entrepreneurs mm-hmm. of, um, of the 19th of the 1900s. If you look at um, the Lever Brothers, if you look at uh, Joseph Roundtree, there are many, many examples of organizational leaders that ran organizations that were very successful, but that had a purpose of serving, at, the, at that time, it was about raising their, their staff out of poverty and giving them decent lifestyles. But we're beyond that now and we are in a global world. So this is writ large for the 21st century. And that's my personal take on it. I think we're also, we've also got to realize that we're in a different society today where those, those people that Danielle mentioned were, were, were great leaders um, in their context. The patern- they were able to be paternal. Um, in today's world, you can't be paternal in the same way. We, you have to, there has to be a shared and distributed leadership. So I think that, that does make a difference. But I think that what we're trying to do is to take people on a journey. We call it the transpersonal leadership development journey because you don't do it in one step. You have to first really learn to increase your self-awareness and, and, and understand about your emotions and so on and so forth. And through that, learn to use different leadership styles. And I can give you an example of uh, one chief executive that, that I'm coaching at the moment and doing transpersonal leadership coaching. And when we got into the different leadership styles that he could use um, and which were the ones that were more beneficial in today's society, like the democratic style or the coaching style or the affiliative style, rather than the pace setting and commanding styles, um, he, he just, you know, suddenly was, had a release of anxiety because for the last 20 years, he'd been told that he has to tell people what to do and set targets. And that was, that was his job. And he said, I've always felt uncomfortable with that. I, th- I thought it was because I was a bad leader. <laughs> and he said, now I know I can use these styles and they're good styles. So I can, I can feel comfortable. I mean, that was a, quite a revelation for the guy. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's a huge issue um, is around that whole thing about authenticity. So yeah. you're leading from a way which is not authentic because that's what you see going on around you and yes. that's what you think is expected of you. So you, you take that role, but it's a conflict with how you would like to lead naturally. Yes. Leads yeah. to the, the kind of stresses and strains that, that go on in terms Absolutely, absolutely. And I think so the kind of organisations that we want, we say we don't say profit enhancing, we say performance enhancing because... Mm increasing performance can be much broader than just monetary and then that has to be followed or combined with being ethical being caring and being sustainable and it's about how do you develop leaders that can do those four things yeah yeah and it's interesting um trying to understand how people get into that position because um if, if we kind of rewind a little bit to to people who are a bit earlier on their leadership journeys um, and they are starting to um, realise that they want to uh, lead it in a different way, but then they're surrounded by 
examples of traditional leadership. Uh, so when people start thinking beyond the ego, but then they're in a culture with, that rewards classical behaviours as opposed to the behaviours we need for the future. How, how do you enable people to kind of cut through that? It's very tough. Very yeah. tough. Um, I mean, there are, there are sort of uh, tactical things that people can do. They can try and find like-minded people um, and work together with them. But if the culture is that toxic, then you have to ask the question, do I want to be in that organization? You know, that's the choice I've made a couple of times. I know Danielle has as well. That, you know, that comes a time when you, when you leave and you find, it, you find an organization that is compatible. And I think that will happen quite a lot um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the coming years. As, and I think always, always has happened in a way. Um, but a lot of people uh, put up with the toxic um, environment in organizations because they, they believe or haven't been made aware of the fact that there is an alternative. And if you're true to yourself, then you, know, you have to be prepared to move away from that organization. And in, in these days when actually the war for talent has been won by the talent, um, the ability of people and the willingness of people to move on and change organisations is much greater than it was in years gone by. And um, the young, younger leaders are not frightened of voting with their feet because they know that there are other companies out there. They know that there are other jobs out there. Um, where, where the, and they look up on things like Glassdoor or they ask around on social media which organisations are good to work for and they find out. And of course setting up your own business is a lot easier than it ever has been. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think also um, something that I've been noticing over the, the last couple of years is uh, I'm sure you, you've been, been the same over the years and uh, really wanting to see organizations to de develop and become more uh, more sympathetic more humane uh, environments where people can flourish and the organization can flourish and there seems to be quite a strong move away from this idea that organizations should be centralized and autocratic uh, which is gaining an awful lot of traction so that that's very encouraging I think for the future yeah, I, I think that one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years, I would say 25 years maybe, is that computers were supposed to help this decentralization. Uh, but what they, what's happened in the first phase of, of the information age is that it's actually decentralized so that if you take the local bank manager who 25 years ago could make a decision by himself on, or herself on a, a mortgage, it now has to be done by an algorithm. Mm. Um, and so that whole th that whole thing about algorithms has enabled as as caused uh, centralization. And of course, the people making those decisions centrally in those big organisations don't know what's going on at the sharp end. They can't possibly. So it's another thing that has really come in that is necessary is trust. You've got to be able to trust the people. And and to some extent, in the past you had that even though you had this sort of paternal and commanding type authoritative type system there was still a level of trust at the sharp end to the people making the decisions i think the 20 years 
20 years of computerization got rid of that. And I think people are realizing that that's not acceptable and are moving back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think trust is actually going to be one of the biggest leadership issues over the next yeah, 5 to 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's trust. It is in both directions, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You have to build trust. It's not. Yes. And that's the the difficult part for the, for the leaders is that actually to create a culture of trust, they have to start off by showing the example of putting trust in others. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Can be a bit of a leap for some. Yeah. I mean, what, what we try to start with to help people is to think of, of setting the right climate before which enables the right culture um, so okay. that whatever whatever they do is authentic <laughs> rather than you know just using words yeah yeah you know these are the six values of the company well you know live them <laughs> that's right. so, so that leads into the next thing that i was interested in exploring a bit and that is um if you have a leader um, in a larger organization where there's a huge amount of corporate inertia who wants to change the way that they're operating, who wants to see the culture evolve, how, in your experience, is, is the best way for them to start making, making that change and to help the organization to be ready to accept a, a new way of being? Danielle, any thoughts on that? Well, we know that uh, uh, the old saying goes, the fish rots from the head. So um, the most powerful way to start a program of change is to start with the people at the top because they set the climate. I'll give you, for instance, um, I'm I'm not going to use a political one. It's too tempting. (laughs) Um, But I worked with an organisation that for 10 years, at its head had been an American who was ex-Disney, quite relaxed, quite sleeves rolled up, and just got on and did things. And everybody came in casual dress, and they were all empowered to get on and do things. And he'd make his own appointments, and he would run his own diary. And when he decided he wanted to semi-retire, they got in an ex-British civil servant to take on the role who came in booted and suited and was used to two PAs to run his diary for him. Overnight, people started coming booted and suited. Within days, this culture of just get on and do it and wait to be in, instead of, and then started to wait to be told what to do by, by this person that had been used to running a British civil service hierarchical organisation. The entire climate changed and the way people behave changed and that becomes the culture so instead of being a relaxed open culture it became a fearful culture and that was very negative for the organization and i'm sure we can all think of parallels in the political world where a similar thing has happened Um, so if you start at the top and you work with the chief exec and with the top team and you help them to go on this journey Um, and at least the first stages of it, and they can consciously decide what examples they're going to set, and therefore what climate they're going to create in the organisation. And then they start to engage, or we would engage, with the layers underneath them, with a similar programme, and we very often will work with their in-house HR or their next-level leaders down so that you start to cascade this 
um, through the organization. I mean, yes, you can try to push it up and we've had experience of doing this. And then all that happened was because the top layer didn't engage, what we ended up with was a middle layer that was kind of stymied above and below them, but were making massive changes in their own level of influence to the point where just in their layer of influence, I think they achieved something like five times cost savings relative to the cost of the program from the increase in productivity. Mm -hmm. So, but the event doesn't take root and grow through the organization. Yeah. So start at the top, cascade yeah. it down. I mean, there are a couple of, couple of things there. The last point that Danielle made, the, the danger is that if the, if the top management doesn't take it seriously, when they've put, the, put their people on a or middle, middle management, if you like, or senior middle management on a leadership program, if they aren't willing to engage in that change, then they will eventually lose those people. Mm. That's one thing. The, the second thing is that um, I think that um, when you deal directly with a senior leadership team, and you have the chief executive who's the driver of that, you, you probably got to expect to lose a, a couple of the people in that senior team. Yeah. Um, you know, they just, they just won't get it or won't want to get it or they're too near retirement to be bothered to get it, whatever. Um, and, but it, it, and it can actually be beneficial to the company that it, sometimes that it actually brings forward that that chasm, if you like, between the old school and the hopefully new school, um, and uh, enables people to leave uh, without being fired. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it actually can help with that. The other thing is that at the same time as starting, or or in the, about the same time as starting from the top down, if you can start the start working with the high potentials, the next generation, and start to build believers at that level as well, then you can, you know, you can cover the organization more quickly. Yeah, and I'd like to also pick up on um, something that Daniel touched on, which was about uh, where you've got people in the middle that are making changes, um, regardless of what's going on at the top. And that, that's something that I, I really um, like to see happen is for individual team leaders, if you like, to actually go countercultural and to do what they believe in and prove that through focusing on an, uh, an approach that is much more inclusive within their own team and gets more out of their own team, that when people see them coming to work and having fun, but producing the goods uh, and, and excelling beyond the other teams, then it's only a matter of time before others start saying, we want a bit of that as well. <laughs> absolutely. No, that's absolutely. I mean, I'm working with a, a client at the moment uh, where one division is, is, is seen as the stars and, and it was the stars that brought in leadership to help the development and it's helped them to be even more stars, you know, even higher above the, the rest of the group. And exactly what is happening now is people are saying, you know, how do you do that? We want some of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, um, so something I'd like to um, get, get your thoughts on as well is looking into the future. Um, I, I went, uh, heard a talk by, um, the chief executive, uh, no, it was the president of the Charter Management Institute, 
a couple of weeks ago and I asked him uh, what was the future of management in uh, in a world where we are uh, sort of post autocracy where we are living in an empowered world what is the role of management if people are empowered to do their own thing um, so what are your views on on that what are the the people who are currently in management positions what, what is their what is their role going to be and how also if you take out the controlling element of leadership you know what is the role of a leader i think that we we have a a way of describing a leader's role. A leader's role is firstly to inspire followers, to attract followers um, by their behaviour, by role modelling, um, and that's irrespective of how much autonomy you pass down the line. It's that role modelling and that example that is vitally important that attracts leaders. And we show a wonderful video called Lessons from the Dancing Guy. Uh, which means that you can go out there and do a weird and wonderful dance. And as people start to follow you, that then becomes the norm. And then there's safety in numbers. It's this old early, early adopters, early majority. And then that weird and wonderful dance becomes the norm. So that's the first role of a leader. The second role of a leader, and again, irrespective of the level to which um, responsibility is passed down the line, and it should be, to the level at the coal face where they know what's going on, is actually to develop those other people, to take them to a place they wouldn't ordinarily go. So to stretch them, to encourage them, to motivate them to be more than even they thought that they could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they are achieving more than they thought even they, they thought was possible. And the final role is to develop new leaders. Um, so out of that development, out of that stretch, out of that inspiration, grows people that start to stand up more and more and put themselves in a leadership position, whether or not they are formally um, labelled a leader. We have to each lead ourselves uh, before we can lead anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So just adding a little bit to that, I think that the... What is really important going forwards is that we try to reduce the impact and the importance of the title that a person has Mm -hmm. because real leadership, I mean, that's, you know, one of the, if you like the way we define it, one of the differences between management and leadership is, is a leader doesn't have to have a title. It's done through influence. Um, So I think that's, um, that's something that I think is really important. The other thing that I think is really important for leaders and is often forget, forgotten, but is implied exactly by what Danielle says, is that a leader is responsible for developing other people. They have a personal responsibility to develop the people who report directly to them. And quite often their solution is to send them off on courses. Yeah. Whereas it should be done through a coaching conversation to help them maximize their potential. And quite often, you know, senior leaders will blame middle management uh, for things not happening. Things get stuck in middle management. Well, it's probably because top management have never worked on personally helping to develop those middle managers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think 
um, it's not just about performance, but what you alluded to earlier in that co coaching conversation is them actually getting a better understanding of themselves and who they are so yes. they can operate more effectively in the world and in the organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one other thing that, that I've been thinking around least recently is what would happen if we um, got all managers and crossed out the word manager and replaced it with word, word facilitator? There's a lot of, lot of merit in that. I mean, there are occasions when the person nominally in charge has to make a decision, um, if it's, particularly if it's a crisis. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the facilitator, it, it, we use six leadership styles, you know, the Goldman, the Goldman styles, yeah. basically. And uh, facilitator covers four of those styles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, John and Daniel, how are we going to change the world of work and, and make it something that people enjoy being a part of and actually contributes to society? Well, we say change the world one leader at a time. Um, because unfortunately we don't have a platform whereby we can um, immediately speak to the whole world but from a pragmatic point of view we are um, working to develop a cadre of coaches around the world that we are taking through their own transpersonal journeys in order to equip them uh, so that they are able to deliver transpersonal leadership coaching to leaders around the world and we've even instigated a um, transpersonal leader medal which we will be awarded annual to an outstanding graduate in any year of one of our, one of the programs delivered by the coaches that we have developed around the world um, something that they that the leaders that they have developed have done that is noteworthy and it may not be the year that they undergo the transpersonal course it may be five years later when they've had a chance to make a massive impact. But um, that's kind of how we're trying to get uh, traction on it. Um, things like this that help us spread the word. So for people to go out there and look for a transpersonal leadership coach or to come to us and find one. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it, you can see that we're pretty passionate about this transpersonal leadership journey being a solution we, we we're not saying that it's the only solution um i think what is what is perhaps unique about our approach is that it's it's codified and replicable um and we ourselves don't want to grow into a huge organization we don't have that ambition but we do want to change the world and the only way we can do that is through partnership um so we are danielle gives a ver one very good example of how we are developing coaches globally to be able to coach in a transpersonal leadership way. Um, we're also working with universities and business schools to infuse transpersonal leadership into their courses, uh, particularly MBAs, but also master's programs. And we've already had our uh, program accredited to master's level. So we've got the pedigree to do that. Um, and, and then the third is working through international partners around the world. So we, we hope to have a, you know, a broad scope to expand this. But I think the other thing that is really important, 
philosophically is that we've got to be careful that we don't consider, you know, there are, there are lots of people who, who would want to change the world through developing leaders. Um, and I think it's really important that we, we don't see ourselves as competitors to them, but collaborators with them, you know, that we can all learn from each other. We haven't got the, we're not, we've got a solution and we're very proud of that solution, but I think other people have too. Um, so I think, um, yeah, that, that's probably answers uh, your question. Peter Hawkins once uh, said to me that um, we're really co-conspirators. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like anything else. I mean, I use a number of different psychological frameworks in my coaching work. And I will pick the one that seems to resonate, the language and the approach that will resonate with that client. And equally with approaches to ethical, authentic leadership, of which, as John rightly says, there are other pathways. As I say, we're passionate about ours and we believe ours is scalable, replicable and accessible. And anybody that wants to discover whether or not it resonates for them can simply pick up the book and read it without committing to anything up front. Um, and I'm sure that that's true of, of other course, uh, courses or ideas as well. But that's a simple way. If people want to explore whether this may be an appropriate pathway for them to be the best leaders that they can be in their context. And that's not about replicating Obama or, or channeling um, uh, Nelson Mandela because we're never going to be Obama or Mandela or any other leader. We can only be the best leaders we can be. Um, and so to try it, to see if it resonates with you or whether some other approach resonates with you, I'd suggest picking up the book as a starter. Um, it doesn't require a great deal of commitment and hopefully it sparks some curiosity. You mentioned Mandela and Obama and, and one of the things that I think you see in leaders of that caliber is that they are very comfortable with themselves and who they are um, and they're very relaxed because of that. So my question then is how do we get people to just chill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I think uh, the, the sort of terminology that I try to use is inner self-confidence. Yeah. So not the bravado self-confidence of I'm the greatest, but the self-confidence of I'm comfortable with who I am as a human being. I realize I'm not perfect. I realize I need to work on myself, but basically I'm okay. Uh, and I think that if we can get people into that state of mind, um, then that would be a big step forward. And what we found with one of, one of our tools that we use called Leaper, which is basically a, an emotional intelligence uh, a set, um, 360 assessment type pro type program um, is that a lot of people who don't have self confidence actually find out in in those kind of assessments that they're they're capable in a lot of ways they didn't realize um, and and I and, and I would say that it's specifically um, noted with young women they are often a lot more competent and capable and thought of more highly by other people than they think of themselves. Yeah. It's not just women, it's also men, as men too. But those kind of people, they're often, you know, there are a lot of people who are highly competent who don't, just don't have the, the 
the faith in themselves. And I think to, to have that information brought to them can be, can be of great value to them in developing their own self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Very often this is based upon childhood experiences of mothers or fathers saying, oh, he's the academic one, she's the, the sporty one, or anything like that. Or yeah. as my own mother said to me when I came to her with a, a B-plus in maths, when I would think of myself as particularly good at maths, why wasn't it an A-plus? So therefore, you're forever from these childhood experiences and conditioning, um, beating yourself up as to you need to be perfect. And then you end up with a be perfect driver. And Mm. so nothing is ever good enough. Um, And for some reason, I think, again, this conditioning about, uh, about boys don't don't cry and girls do this and, and all these conditions that we're hopefully diminishing the in in the current day and age but are still there in subconscious and and in society and in subliminal messages that come out and that for a woman to be successful she has to be better than a man so she drives herself to be better than a man because for some reason she has to compensate for the fact that maybe she might have a child one day and want to take maternity leave. And there's this sense of apology. And I'm not saying it's just women because I've seen a lot of young men that lack this inner self-confidence and that acceptance that none of us are the finished article. And this is the problem with the kind of white horse riding, white hat hero leader, that we imagine that they are full of self-confidence and that they have no self-doubt. But almost without exception, everybody I have done the leapers with, be they male or female, senior or middle level, have always appeared to other people to be more self-confident than they score themselves. So their inner level of self-confidence is lower than what they're portraying to the outside world. And actually seeing the positive affirmation that is coming back about their levels of competence allows them to start to relax and take the pressure off themselves a little bit. Yes, I think that's one of the great frustrations in our work, Danielle, is that we come across that all the time. And a lot of the work that we're doing is undoing things that, that uh, undoing harms that have been caused mm. very often by their formative experience in the education system. Um, I don't don't want us to kind of uh, degenerate into a conversation about education because that happens nearly every, every time we talk about leadership. Is <laughs> that's where it, where it goes back to? You know, you follow the trail and and uh, okay. So. But I think there's another there's another aspect of that though, and that is, I mean, I think that everything that's been said is correct about you know the upbringing and so on and so forth. But the, there is also one area of values which is what we call self determination which means that you have to take responsibility at the end of the day when you're an adult you can't for the whole of your life blame your parents or your education or whatever you know you've got to at some point in time take responsibility and use those issues that you had as a child as as a positive as a learning and i think that uh, you know one of the things that is uh, that the transpersonal leadership journey is sort of based on to some extent is the keegan keegan adult development um, stages, yeah. which is, you know, quite familiar to a lot of people. And um, what we are trying to do is to actually, rather than allow that development to just happen through 
serendipity. And if you're lucky, you know, if you're one of the one of those five percent who have the right kind of mixture of experiences and innate capabilities, you might get to level five. What we want to do is to try to actually help people to be proactive in changing themselves so that we can accelerate that that adult development. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. And um, one, one of the things that I'm interested in there is um, when I spoke to Richard Barrett about it, um, he suggested that to, to get from one stage to the next, it required some kind of trauma that uh, would give you that, um, that motivation to change. Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I think you can get the aha moment without going through trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, although trauma is one way of doing it. But it's not something that I would recommend that you (laughs) for, to be quite honest. I I suppose when we have a trauma, we can use it in that way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can think of a couple of times in my life that have been, you know, they've been life changing for me because of a negative experience. and, And certainly you learn from it and so on and so forth. But I don't think it has to be that way. I don't know what you think, Danielle. I agree with you, John. You, you know, you, you can grow through. I think probably a very simple, maybe a silly example is when I was doing my um, postgraduate coaching course, I can remember every time I didn't run a, a, a practice session that was observed well, I learned from my mistakes. And then one day the tutor said something to me. And as a result, I put down all my notes and I focused on my client. And at the, that session went so beautifully, it worked so perfectly, and she had such massive insights that I actually was worried I hadn't learned anything from it. But interestingly enough, when I came to do the next session, I discovered that I could, by reflecting on what went well, take that learning forward in just the same way as I could take forward a negative experience. So what you're creating, if you think about when you learn to drive, um, if you have a car crash, you don't necessarily keep crashing your car. You, but equally, by avoiding a car crash, you also learn how to not crash a car. Mm. So I think from positive experiences, through the kind of processes that we take clients through about reflecting on themselves, learning more about themselves, digging deeper into their values and their self-determination. What do you bring to the world? How do you bring it to the world? Well, I know that I'm a hugely high energy person. So a lot of what I believe and I'm passionate about, I bring to other people through that level of energy that I bring. So by learning more about what I can bring and what I do and what I can do well, I can do more of it. I can replicate the good just as easily as learn from the bad. So I don't agree with Richard that you have to have a traumatic experience. Um, It it can be a lesson for you, but some people, um, when faced with a traumatic experience, simply retreat into themselves, become depressed, become dysfunctional. So I think the risks of relying on trauma to teach you life lessons is not worth the, the downside. Yeah, I, I always relate. Yeah, I, I always think that you can relate uh, both personal change and uh, corporate change to um, the whole uh, tectonic plate idea. Is that if the if there are regular small changes, then you can do it without the trauma. But it's when you don't change and gradually you become more and more out of sync with, with what's going on around you. So there has to be a big and traumatic change. So I think the idea of personal development as being an ongoing learning 
where every day we, we take small steps. I think that's the, that's the critical thing, isn't it? It's the, it's the learning, it's the reflection. Well, you know, whatever experience you get, whether it's good or bad, whether it's very bad or very good or in between, it, it, to some extent, it doesn't matter. It's a question of what, do you, what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, and I think also another very important point that Daniel made was around um, learning from what you've done well. And to me, that's about uh, embedding in yourself an idea of what good looks like. And that links back to the role of the leader in the future, which is very much around helping people to understand what good, good looks like within their organisation and highlighting what, what is good practice and also yeah. highlighting bad practice so that people know what good looks like, they know what bad look like, yeah. looks like, yeah. and they can catch themselves doing either. Yeah. And therefore, reinforce the, the positives. Absolutely, reinforcing the positive. I think that's, you know, and that's basic for, for, for infants and children as well, isn't it? You don't want to put them through traumas either if you don't have to. <laughs> neuroscience, with the, the neuroscience tells us that when have a positive experience the brain goes into a towards state a receptive and an accepting state rather than retreats into a survival fight or flight state mm -hmm. so in fact what he said about reflecting on positive messages keeping looking at, at, at a positive future that's not being stupidly uh, optimistic and unrealistic it's making correct appropriate risk assessments but looking at how can I move towards this? And if, if you go back to Kennedy, he said, we will put a man on the moon at the, by the end of the decade. And that gave them a, a positive goal to reach for. Um, it wasn't so far away 20, 30 years that nobody was energized to make movements towards it, mm. um, nor was it so, so, um, so far out of reach, we'll do it in three years, that it turned people off. It was giving that galvanization of a positive something to move towards that brought all the, the energies of what became NASA and, and the space, pro, the, the moon program um, together to achieve that objective. But it was ambitious, but it was achievable. And I think also, Danielle, um, referring to the neuro, uh, neuroscience is that when we are in a positive state, it releases the positive neuropeptides. Uh, right. When we're in a negative state, you know, our whole system gets disrupted. So yeah. we, we become an unresourceful um, state then. So. Yeah, not only that, we can't think clearly because our blood supply is being driven to our limbs to fight or, fly or, or flee. Um, and therefore we have less capacity to think clearly. Um, and we, we become cavemen, essentially. Um, and the opposite is true. If, if you're able to become more resourceful by enabling your mind to think by taking hold of your emotions and not going into that fight, flies, flight, freeze space, um, you, you just have more resources to take forward steps. And you're creating new neural pathways that the more you, you engage with those neural pathways, the more stable they become, the more it becomes a positive new habit and the unhelpful pathways gradually fall into disuse. And I think that also highlights the ineffectiveness of traditional leadership, uh, leading by fear, uh, because it creates the opposite of productivity. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Productive, then they, they close down and they do the minimum possible. 
So oh. that's, a, that's the challenge for the leader is that the future is to create that positive environment mm. where people can flourish within the organization and together they can co-create a rich and vibrant future. Absolutely. Cool. So um, I'm aware that we've been chatting for getting on for an hour. Um, so I just wondered in summing up, if you could perhaps give us some thoughts on um, where your thinking is taking you now um, and, and what the future holds for the two of you. Um, well, for me, I'm finding myself invited to talk to um, an increasing number of groups to spread the word. And I think it is just about giving people this sense of what is possible if we think differently, if we work differently, if we operate differently from our best selves. Um, so I'm trying to take advantage of all those opportunities and work with as many coaches as I can to help them develop the skills and the capabilities to become transpersonal leaders um, within their own communities and transpersonal coaches of other people uh, so i guess that's where i i see it john um i think that the in terms of um my my own major focus within leadership i think it's to try and get transpersonal leadership into the higher education institutes i think that's where we can have the biggest long-term gain um because if we can get people in there you know, late teens or early 20s, probably more at the graduate, perhaps more at the graduate level to start with, um, to be thinking about this. That first of all, they, my experience is that they buy into it right away. Um, and they say, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're doing a, a program that is not part of, a, uh, of their university program as such, it's a sort of an external extra or something like that, they often ask, why isn't this mainstream? Why are we doing this on the edge, you know, sort of thing. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. And, and, um, and I think that universities, a lot of the universities um, are looking for, for new things to offer anyway. They re I think they realize, uh, many people realize that the standard MBA is, is, uh, is not, uh, not quite as good as um, yeah. for the 21st century as it's made out to be. Um, and so new universities... Um, and smaller universities, I think, are really looking for a, for a difference. So that's one area for me for focus. The other two things are, are more um, more intellectual, if you like, and that is the 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 system versus the individual leader. Um, and I think most yeah most people in the sort of the academic world are are more comfortable looking at the systemic solutions. Um, and and that that isn't that is a necessity, but but I believe that unless we have individual leaders, that those systems will never actually get put in place. So if we're looking at the chicken and the egg, I think we've got to start. Our focus anyway is to start on developing individual leaders so that they can influence the the systems. And then if we look to the future about where is where is you know what's after transpersonal leadership, if you like. Um, I think that one of the things that is really important is is combining the body and the mind. Mm -hmm. At the moment, you know, leadership is very much about the mind um, and not enough about the body. I think health is such an integrated, integral part of leadership, a sustainable leadership. 
um, and that is not that's not really touched on in many areas that that sort of relationship between the mind and the body so i think that's that's where the future will probably take us intellectually yeah that's lovely and i see some encouraging signs there as well john um major automotive retailer that, that i've been working with um a couple of individuals have used expressions like using well-being to drive performance yeah and yeah. human values underpin performance yeah yeah so it's really really good yeah stuff. And, and using it that way well-being in a positive way rather than a sort of a, a, a um <laughs> To, to solve to solve a problem yeah. um you know we we need well-being so that people don't get so stressed when we keep on telling them nastily how to do what to do yeah. well, well that, that's that's fantastic i mean it's, it's really been great talking with you guys because it, it's it's made me kind of reconnect with my desire of getting people to, to stop being so uptight and just relax and yeah do do what's right rather than yes. trying to second guess what they should be doing absolutely yeah cool well that's lovely thank you both very much for your time um is there anything else you want to add before we wrap it up just we hope that people will take a look at the book take a look at um the idea of being who they are and the best who they are in whatever role they have leading themselves and leading others well we covered a lot of ground there and introduced a number of concepts that you may not be familiar with but before i go into that I'd like to give their book another plug. It's called Leading Beyond the Ego, How to Become a Transpersonal Leader. And it's packed full of great ideas and exercises to get you started. Next time, we'll be taking a bit of a different track as I'll be talking with RSA CEO Matthew Taylor, who chaired the government's Taylor Review into the future of work. And we'll be discussing some of the challenges around that. So back to today and some of the things we referred to with John and Danielle. Firstly, I mentioned the leadership development framework. This was a technique partly developed by David Rook, and I'll be talking to him in a later episode, so I'll give you some more details then. I also mentioned Richard Barrett, uh, and I'll be chatting with him later in this series too, so again, tune in to find out more. John referred to Goldman's leadership styles and also emotional intelligence. Daniel Goldman, that's G O E L M A N, wrote the definitive emotional intelligence book in the mid-90s and then went on to develop his six leadership styles as outlined in his 2013 book, Primal Leadership. Cool, so that's it. Join me next time to hear what Matthew Taylor has to say. like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.